I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Cytokines, which play an essential role in immune cell signaling, have long been recognized as having great therapeutic potential, but efforts to harness them have been hampered by their toxicity. Bonham Therapeutics is overcoming this limitation by engineering cytokines with a sensor domain that makes their activity dependent on their environment. While the company is focusing its efforts to develop regulated cytokines to treat cancer, it also has the potential as an approach to autoimmune, metabolic, and other conditions. We spoke to Bonham Therapeutics Chief Scientific Officer Diane Hollenbaugh and Bonham Chief Business Officer Neela Patel about the therapeutic potential of cytokines, the challenges of using them as therapeutics, and why Bonham's context-dependent cytokines may enable wider use of these proteins to treat a range of diseases. Diane, Neela, thanks for joining us. Great to be here with you today, Danny. This is Neela. This is Diane. Thanks for having us. We're going to talk about Bonham Therapeutics, its platform technology, and its efforts to develop cytokine drugs with controlled activity. Let's start with cytokines. For listeners not familiar with these, Diane, can you explain what they are and the role they play within the immune system? Certainly. So cytokines are secreted proteins that are a very important part of how different immune cells communicate with each other. And they play this role where they coordinate different activities. So for example, you know, The the immune system consists of many different cell types that have very differing functions and different roles to play, but they all have to direct each other. So in early in an immune response, you know, you're out gardening and you poke yourself with a stick and now you got bacteria in there. There's a set of cells that recognize bacteria. They just generic bacteria and they'll send, send out the alarm and cytokines are part of that alarm that they send out calling in the other cells that need to come to kill those bacteria and get rid of them and clear that all out. So they're very, they can be very specific. Everything from some cytokines just tell other cells, just grow. They're like growth factors. You know, they're just like pouring kerosene on on a fire, just go and do more. And there's other cytokines that are more like they're directing traffic. They will tell other cells to differentiate down a certain pathway, become this kind of cell because we need more like that. And then there's some cytokines that are suppressive, that are more like, okay, we're done responding to these bacteria, you know, this cut is starting to heal, we don't need to be responding so much anymore, so we need to all just quiet down and be done with this. So they cover this whole spectrum, this whole range of different types of activities, turning things on, turning things off, telling other cells what to do. As a therapeutic class, these have been around for some time. The 
FDA approved interferon alpha in 1986 and it approved IL-2 in 1992. What's been the history of this class of therapies and how effective have they been? It's really a fascinating set of proteins because they are so many different ones and they play these central roles in different ways. There are lots of ways that they can be used therapeutically to turn things on or turn things off. And interferon and IL-2 are two wonderful examples of that. They're different in that they drive different aspects of the immune response. Interferon, you know, they're very, it's very pleiotropic. It'll do many, many different things. Um, IL-2 is very focused. Um, it's one of those growth factors that just drives cells to do something. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about IL-2. Um, IL-2 has been, it's incredibly effective and it's very important for the people, the patients who are able, who respond to it, but it's incredibly toxic. It's a very narrow population that it's used in. It's a small subset of a certain type of cancer that will respond to IL-2, but it's also not used until there are no other options, until we have nothing else for that patient. And the reason is it's incredibly toxic. Patients end up in the ICU or worse. Um, there are deaths that are due to this. So it's not necessarily very generally used, but for the patients who do respond, their tumors go away and they can go on to long-term remission. Um, we are very cautious about using the word cure in cancer, um, but this is a, an area where it gets to what we're doing in the core of immuno-oncology, where by reactivating the immune system, you've now taught the immune system how to get around the suppressive mechanisms of the cancer. Now that immune system is gonna keep that cancer at bay from, from now on. Beyond IL-2 itself, but you know, thinking in terms of the broader class, what's limited wider use of these as therapies? There's a couple things that limit. One is the toxicity. As soon as we're turning on the immune system, there's, there's so much power in that. So there are lots of toxicities that are associated with turning on the immune system either in a general way or even in some of the more specific targeted kinds of ways. The other thing that limits their use is, is efficacy. Immuno-oncology and immune stimulation doesn't work yet for, for every patient and every cancer type um, across the board yet, and that's partly because we don't yet know how to do it. We don't know which immune mechanisms we need to manipulate, and we don't know how to manipulate them. So the things that have really limited this are those two aspects of it. With respect to cytokines especially, because they are so powerful, um, the toxicities that are associated with them um, have been largely what's been limiting. Now, in addition to that, the toxicity of just using the cytokine um, comes about, but also sometimes you can't dose at a high enough level because that toxicity is so strong, you're hitting other things before you even get to a dose that lets you do the biology you want to do to benefit that patient. Bonham's developing a, a class of cytokine therapies that it describes as context-dependent and that act in targeted and a regulated manner. How does it do this? What we're doing really takes advantage of an idea that shows up across biology and proteins all over in lots of different ways, which is proteins regulate each other. Proteins block this function. They bind to a protein, another protein. They block its function. 
They might bind to another protein and change how it works, or they might bind to another protein and deliver it somewhere. There's lots of examples across all of biology where one protein regulates another. And we've taken advantage of that. Um, originally, Good Therapeutics, the, the roots of Bonum, of Good Therapeutics, when John founded the company, was to start with this idea where one protein can regulate another. What we're doing with that is that we're using our proteins to regulate a cytokine, these incredibly powerful proteins that can do lots of really good biology that we can't yet use as therapeutics. So what we do is we take our platform and we apply it to a cytokine that has activities we don't want. We use our technology to turn that cytokine off. It's completely turned off. It can't do anything until it binds to the sensor. So in that way, what we're able to do is to both target that cytokine to the cell type we want, as well as regulate it so that it doesn't do any of the things we don't want it to do. So one example of our one program that we have is, for example, is PDL1 interferon. In this protein that we're working on, what we're doing is we're taking interferon, that very pleiotropic cytokine, and we're attaching it to a thing that binds to PDL1. That cytokine interferon is now only active when it's bound to a PDL1 expressing cell. And so it's now going to be acting on that population only in that area, not doing those other things that are negative and not doing that toxicity. What are you actually attaching to the IL to target it? Our platform is all based on um, basically antibody formats. So they look just like, structurally, they look just like antibodies or immunocytokines, antibody fusions that have been in the clinic many, many times. There are drugs based on these types of formats. So it looks very normal from that point of view. Well, it, if I think of antibody conjugates and, and things like that, the challenge is often in the linking technology. How reliably are you able to, to link it to the interleukin and does it reliably get released at the intended target? Um, it does. Right from the start, you know, we, we know that we can't just make a protein that we can make in the lab. It has to be able to be scalable. It has to be stable. Otherwise, it can't be, it can't be a therapeutic. So, but what we're working with, there's not conjugates, they're fusions. So in that sense, we're not making two things separately mm -hmm. and then doing a later step chemically fusing them or conjugating them. Right. These, are, these are simply fusion proteins where the cytokine and the antibody format are uh, just expressed as a single entity, you know, in our CHO cells, like we would make any other antibody type of biologic protein. Does that present any manufacturing challenges? Every biologic has its own eccentricities. <laughs> so, uh, but our program, all of our programs are based on known proteins, antibodies, cytokines, linkers that have been in the clinic before. We basically are putting together parts that have been used in other formats and in other ways many, many, many times. So we're building all of this on the precedent of decades of biologics development. And how broad a set of indications might you be able to treat this way? And, and what might this 
platform allow you to do that wasn't previously possible or practical? The platform allows us to think about using targets that you couldn't use any other way. And it really is indication agnostic. Maybe um, to start with by what we mean by indication. So in oncology, historically, indication meant the tissue of origin of the tumor, lung cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer. But over time, you know, we've subdivided those based on molecular markers and what, what mutations they have that are driving those. And over time, we're now developing means of understanding what the immune profile is and being able to find where certain sets of breast cancer patients may have more in common with certain lung patients. Um, you wouldn't see that just from a distance, but when their immune component may be more similar. So that's where in immuno-oncology, being able to understand and learn about what are the drivers for the suppression or what are the drivers that would allow you to overcome that suppression for any given tumor type means that the indications we're working on are across tumor types in a different kind of way. And this has already been, there's already an FDA approval um, for one of the PD-1 antibodies based on a molecular marker where those patients are more likely to respond if they have this molecular marker, regardless of where the tumor came from. For us using our platform, it actually really applies not just across different mechanisms for immuno-oncology, but for many other disease states. Any disease state that may be amenable to a biologic therapeutic, we can imagine ways that this could work. For example, in autoimmunity, many of the therapies are just broad immunosuppression. But you could imagine that there may be a, for example, cytokine whose job it is is to turn off the immune system that you could target to the specific population that was leading to that autoimmunity and do it in a more targeted way that may be either safer or more efficacious for those patients with that autoimmune, um, autoimmune underlying autoimmune response. Well, let's bring Neela in here. Perhaps we can take a step back and talk a little about how Bonum came about. The technology the company is developing had been the basis for good therapeutics, which Roach acquired in 2022. Walk me through how Bonum came about and why did Roach acquire good therapeutics rather than just the asset in which they were interested? Definitely. And I just I just want to clarify that um, at the time of the acquisition, um, what remained in good therapeutics was the intellectual property and associated reagents for our PD-1 IL-2 program. And prior to the acquisition, um, we had spun out the rest of the company into Bonum. And by the rest of the company, I mean employees, the platform intellectual property, all of our other portfolio programs, our lease, everything. So essentially, in that acquisition, Roche was acquiring the program. And there were, there were, I'll, I'll offer a couple of perspectives on that deal structure, both ours and I'll speak lightly to potential benefits to Roche. So for us as good therapeutics, um, in our Series A raise, one of our goals was to provide a return to investors through the sale of assets. And it turned out that we were able to achieve that goal with the sale of this one asset, PD-1 IL-2, which remained in good therapeutics and everything else moved out. And that M&A structure 
through which Roche um, got access to the asset that they were most interested in, it it allowed us to sell that specific program that they wanted to Roche. It allowed us to return money to investors in a very tax efficient manner. And it also enabled Bonham to continue to make new innovative therapeutics and to really jumpstart us um, when we closed our Series A as Bonham. From the partner perspective, that M&A allowed them to take full control of the program and to move it forward in accordance with their own processes and decision-making. And there weren't the distractions of a partner, the kinds of distractions that can come with a licensing deal or other structures where the originator stays on board in some form or other. And is there any kind of ongoing relationship between Roche and Bonham? Um, well, in in the M&A deal, Roche didn't gain any ownership in Bonham. Um, and there, there, we still have a dialogue between Roche and Bonham about the PD-1 IL-2 asset, but they're in full control. They're in full control and, you know, we're, we're moving along with our, with our own portfolio. And separate from that, are, are they investors? Roche Venture Fund, which is the corporate venture arm of Roche, they did invest in Bonham in our Series A. The good therapeutics team and technology are now Bonham. What has that continuity meant to the pace at which Bonham is able to make progress? It's been pretty incredible for us. As we say internally, the only thing that changed for us as employees was our email address. Um, and it meant that um, we hit the ground running, really. So our um, portfolio of six or more programs is um, maturing very rapidly. And we're really pleased with, with having a full team in place, you know, day zero, we were we were ready to run and continuing with the work that we were already doing. Bonham raised $93 million in a Series A that was announced when it launched. Diane, the company's pipeline is focused on cancer, but the technology, as you talked about earlier, does have a broader range of potential. How are you thinking about your pipeline strategy, and how are you thinking about partnering opportunities? The way we look at it is that we know we can't do everything. We have this very nice technology, but it does apply across lots of biologies that there are other people who know more about than we do and that would have the ability to take these forward in ways that maybe we couldn't without doing lots of building. So our goal really in our partnering approaches is to find ways to bring our technology to benefit patients in ways that we don't have right now. And to use what we already know how to do, the infrastructure we've built out, the, the knowledge and the, the ways that we know learned how to create these proteins and to apply them in areas where someone else may, they may bring the biology and we bring the technology and together we make a great therapeutic. And I'll just jump in there um, and say that 
With respect to our pipeline strategy and partnering opportunities, we do have a two-track process for partnering or two different ways that we're doing it. And, and the one is really about our internal portfolio programs. Um, and the other is the kinds of collaborations that Diane referenced. For our internal programs, we do plan to take one or more of these into the clinic, depending on where we believe we can add value based on the biology. There are some sensor therapeutic pairs that we believe the most compelling data might be generated during our preclinical experiments. And there's others where we really feel that um, phase one data is going to be meaningful. And ultimately we will partner those programs. Um, the timing for it will be dependent on the partner's uh, interest and their expertise to advance the program. On the collaboration track, which is which is separate, where we would apply our technology um, to target and regulate therapeutics, we, we will make bespoke molecules for potential partners, and then they would advance the molecule. So we're actively engaged in, in both discussions uh, right now. And in terms of the company's own pipeline, what's the lead experimental therapy and what indications are you pursuing with it? We are at the discovery stage, so we do have multiple programs um, inter in interferon, IL-2 and IL-12, as well as some others. Um, and described in a, on our website, many have described on our website. One thing that we have across these is that they do have different risk profiles. Every cytokine has its own eccentricities and what biologies we know about it and where to target it and how to work with it. So across our programs, we have a differing biological and technical risks and as well as synergies as we work with interferon, for example, and we can target it to different, different cell types or different locations. We learn a lot about how to work with that protein, how to um, create stable proteins, you know, as we think about what our CMC package will look like when we ha start heading to the clinic. For all of these programs, because this is in, in immuno-oncology, we are looking at biology that crosses, you know, traditional indication types. So there, we do see that there's definitely a medical need. Everything we start from starts from a medical need. And for all of these, we see applications across fairly large swath of, um, of potential patient populations and potential medical need areas. Um, and then lastly, we, we do have multiple programs that we're working on. And really what it allows us to do is to see which one works, basically, um, which one or ones, I should say. Um, it's always the case in discovery that you'll be working along on something and all of a sudden something will pop and you know this is the one and you just start to run with it. So we have we do have multiple programs in that discovery stage. And at this point, they're all looking very promising and, uh, and can definitely see line of sight all the way through uh, clinical trials for, for all of these. Well, uh, give us some sense of the, the thought process that goes into identifying a lead program. You, you talked about differing risk profiles of these programs, but, uh, you know, how does that weigh against the indications and, you know, the, the potential unmet needs or, or other factors? 
This is one of the fun parts of drug discovery. It's kind of like in math when you have more unknowns than you do equations and you, you just uh, you can't necessarily solve for everything. Um, there are so many different parameters that go into that. One part of it is that just starting from what's the therapeutic hypothesis? If I'm looking at this particular sensor therapeutic pair, what do I think I'm, that thing will do when I take it into the clinic? And is there a need for that? And then the next question that comes from all of that is, how will I know? Is there a way to prove that therapeutic hypothesis? Is there anything I can do in this very early stage in discovery that will tell me whether that idea is way off base or is even close, or maybe it's just spot on? What can I do and how early can I do it to help to understand that? Now, because of because of the way that our proteins are regulated, we are starting from things like interferon and IL-2. We know that those have efficacy in cancer, but because of the way we're targeting them and have this biology be so focused that we can do biology that you can't really get to any other way. So for some of the things we're working on, we really can't test the therapeutic hypothesis until we have that regulated molecule which actually leads to the potential for some very interesting immunology questions to be able to answer, some even very academic potentially, immunology questions for being able to split out how these different things um, may work. But fundamentally, it's not different from drug discovery in, in any other area where we start from an unknown, a question we're trying to solve, and trying to create a molecule and a set of tools to assess those molecules that will allow us to know whether or not this will benefit patients when we can get them. How soon do you hope to be in the clinic? Our current goal is for a lead program to be choosing our clinical candidate within a year, probably less than that. I hesitate because uh, in drug discovery, you just never really know when something might pop and something could go very quickly. Or you think you already have it and you're, you know, just a couple months from your clinical trial and something comes apart. So I'm always careful to give too big a pre predictions that way, but we certainly will be choosing a clinical candidate for at least one program, potentially two or maybe even three within the next year or two. A lot of the early success in immuno-oncology has, has been around liquid tumors. What's the potential for this approach to treating solid tumors? Absolutely. The success in liquid tumors has been really focused on the CD3 bispecifics, where that's a, a different, slightly different mechanism and a different way of using the immune system than things like the anti-PD-1 or anti-CHLA-4 approaches um, that are used very broadly in solid tumors. The challenges in solid tumors is, well, they're solid. Uh, <laughs> there's aspects of just geography about, you know, getting your immune system to respond and getting in there. Um, the immunosuppressive mechanisms that are involved are very different, potentially very different than in liquid tumors, but there is carryover and crossover between those. And much, much work done, um, especially with the success of the anti-PD-1s and the anti-CTLA-4 and, anti and some of the other more recent things where um, the data that's that has come from the clinical use of those 
the study that the studies of those tumors directly, you know, being able to take the tumors out and ask what happened when the patient was treated with this or what's happening to their immune system and the things that we've learned from that, those things will lead us, are leading us to some of these other types of biologies. And now what we're doing is for us at Bonum is marrying that biological understanding and those learnings with a different way of being able to target it. I'll just jump in. In addition, when we think about the cytokines that we choose to modulate and to control and regulate, we work from data that's existing today, like as Diane referenced, IL-2 and interferon alpha, there's clinical precedent for those working in patients with solid tumors. Some of the other um, cytokines, as we start to explore them, maybe the data will will be primarily around preclinical, but in general, we are picking cytokines for which there is evidence of activity in solid tumors. So that's our, that's our starting place. And then how do we make that into a drug that can be toler- well tolerated and efficacious? And that is where our platform comes in. And is the ultimate goal to be a commercial company or would you seek to do the types of deals that Good Therapeutics did with Roche? We, at this point, it's really way too soon for us to think about what it would look like to be a commercial organization. We really are focused on creating good therapeutics that benefit patients however we got there. So we do think that we'll um, work with other parties, maybe sell some assets to other organizations where they may have the infrastructure to do it better, faster, stronger, or reach patients that we can't or have other pieces that they bring to the puzzle. Um, and But from the point of view of commercialization, that's way too far for us um, to think about into the future. Bonham Chief Scientific Officer Diane Hollenbaugh and Bonham Therapeutics Chief Business Officer Neela Patel. Diane, Neela, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.